but I think a true entrepreneur is someone who has a, a very high tolerance for risk taking that truly does love to make things out of thin air to think of something and then turn it into a reality and also somebody who is willing to eat plates and plates and plates of shit until the shit turns into a steak <laughs> i love it we're gonna we're gonna ride out to that you're listening to episode number two of the young founders podcast hosted by myself riley farbaugh as well as my good friend and colleague nate boland on this episode of the podcast we've got nick ingersoll Nick is a serial entrepreneur, award-winning designer, and marketing thought leader. He's perhaps best known as a co-founder and the CMO of Barnana, which is a healthy, organic snack product found across the U.S. in popular chains like Healthy Living, Whole Foods, and even Starbucks. Barnana has been featured in a ton of publications like Clean Eating, Good Housekeeping, The Vegetarian Times, Women's Running, Pop Sugar, and more. Nick himself was recognized by Forbes as a top 30 under 30 entrepreneur. We had a bunch of fun recording this episode, talking about all sorts of different things, including Nick's entrepreneurial journey, from building websites to selling art on eBay, to his first venture-backed business, which was an AR company, and now his experience building Barnana. We talked about fundraising, how much equity you should be giving away in your first round, uh, his experience raising 300000 in the first year of starting Barnana and, and how you should approach that. Um, we talked about the importance of timing in the market and what it feels like to be too early, especially in a, a tech-driven business like AR, why you should ignore the opinions of most people, uh, why execution is so important and, and trumps ideas every single time, and then why you should optimize your business for your own personal freedom, which I think is super important. Uh, we also talked about his personal brand, how he was able to do that, and why that matters, and also his top three recommended books for young entrepreneurs. Be sure to connect with Nick on social media at Ingersoll Nick, and follow Barnana at Barnana across all major social media platforms. And without further ado, let's dive right into the podcast. Let me give a quick little synopsis on Barnana here, and feel free to jump in if I if I mess something up. But one of Nick's co-founder, or sorry, yeah, one of Nick's co-founders, and and you might have to correct me on the pronunciation here, but Kawei Suplicy. Yes, sir. Is that right? Okay, so Kawei grew up in Brazil, and he noticed a lot of the bananas that were grown locally were going to waste. And I'm just going to read from your website here, Nick. When imperfect bananas have scuffs, are a little too ripe, or aren't the perfect size, they're typically rejected for export. We take these delicious bananas and turn them into snacks. We are on a mission to end food waste on organic banana farms by upcycling the bananas that go to waste. Which I think is such a cool idea, and clearly you guys have been able to execute uh, execute on it really well. Uh, the company started in 2010. Is that right? Well, technically, uh, our first year in business was 2013. Although, um, you know, we started working on it as a side project, a side hustle, if you will, in about 2010 when I was in college. 
Okay. So how you guys were both in college. How old were you at that point? No. So Catway's like, um, more than a decade older than me. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I, I was, uh, what, I mean, early twenties. Um, I started, um, you know, both venture backed businesses, both candy lab and Barnana, uh, while I was attending undergrad. So, you know, we'd be sitting in your upper division, whatever it is class. And I just had my laptop out working on packaging and, um, you know, doing the damn thing. How was that balancing um, college life with uh, building a brand? Dude, it was interesting. Like, you know, I, I grew up uh, in western Nebraska in this rural area. Um, you know, we, we never, never had any money. So uh, the way that I figured out how to sort of escape the poverty cycle and the isolated area that I was in was to get really good at school. So it was an interesting dichotomy for me in that I was so laser focused, um, you know, in, in getting a 4.0 both in high school and, and in college because that's the way that I saw uh, out of, of where I was at, um, you know, and so I, I had to maintain that um, no matter what, right? And, you know, w- where I grew up, it was like, y- you don't have a lot of money and, and a good backup plan is always to have one of those fresh degrees. I was the first person to graduate with a degree in, in my family. Um, but it was tough, man. It, basically, what, how it played out was I just didn't have any social life, um, which isn't like <laughs> drastically different than now. Um, Cause I'm just so committed to the hustle, you know? No, I feel we've like had, yeah. yeah. We've had other guests voice that same uh, dilemma of like balancing college and classes and grades with their business. And it, it really, it really is a struggle. Yeah. Uh, so let me, let me see if I got, if I've got this right, Nick, you started kind of doing some product development on Barnana in 2012 and and you weren't selling anything back then or I'm sorry in 2010 no, yeah. In 2010, we weren't doing anything. Um, essentially, uh, where, where I was at, so I was in undergrad. Um, yeah, I started a small consultancy. I was doing design work and developing websites back. This is, you know, in a, in a 2010 environment, you're talking pre-Shopify, pre-general CMS, WYSIWYG, easy to build website capabilities for people. So this was all me, you know, hand designing, hand coding, um, the, the whole thing. So um, I was doing that for a while. I, I paired up with a dude that was doing SEO. And so we would offer these services together. And that's when we sort of made our, our very first consultancy. And um, in doing that, then we pivoted and decided we were going to use our retained earnings and instead start an augmented reality platform, which in a 2010 and 11 environment, no one knew what the fuck that was. So it was like, yeah, people still don't know what that is, uh, let alone back then. Um, and so I was working on that um, side hustle and some some additional sort of projects. And uh, then Barnana came came across. You know, I met Coway and um, you know, I had a bicycle manufacturing company at the time. Um, and we started working as a, as a side project somewhere in 2010. Um, he had a, a vague idea of products that were similar to that in Brazil and other parts of South America. And, you know, we, we just kept working on it, working on it in the background and his candy lab started to go a different direction, um, that, that I didn't want to be involved anymore. I jumped ship, um, and co-founded Barnana. Um, you know, 2012 was when we sort of launched the brand. 2013 was our first year in business. And, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how that went. Um, so with candy labs, I know you raised some capital for that. I'm curious to know how that went. But I think it's really cool that, uh, you know, you were doing kind of design and development and then you had a partner doing SEO. 
that is eerily similar to Nate. And I. Uh, Nate does the web design. I do the SEO and paid search. Uh, and then you used that revenue to kind of get the, the, it, it was augmented reality. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, uh, you were doing client work and using that revenue to support the development of that platform, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, back then, and again, this is pre Pokemon go, it's like, you know, I was talking about augmented reality and people we're like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> so okay, so you make some app on the phone, like whatever. Um, you know, let alone uh, if, if I knew that all I had to do was put a, a Squirtle and a uh, a Mewtwo on the damn app, um, everybody <laughs> would have got it immediately. Uh, but instead, we we started by. Uh, white labeling it and and selling it as almost like a Pokemon like a Pokemon Go like experience for for other brands businesses um, and so you know it was premature to the market to say the least um, but yeah that's what we did you know we took our retained earnings um, and we funneled them into product development which uh, you know the the thing about um, the thing about client service work and and both of you will know this it's you're trading your time for money and and there's a way to scale that definitely. Um, and you know, but for me, it was never the the end all. I I, I love creating products, and so um, th- that was sort of the trajectory that that it took. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so it it's eerily similar, like I said, to what we're doing with Montverde Media. And I, by the way, this is the first time that we've mentioned on this podcast that we also run uh, a marketing agency. But so you were way ahead to the AR game. You raised some capital for it. Um, tell us a little bit more, where did you see that business going and why did you end up jumping ship? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's tough and I have to be a little bit careful about, uh, what I say actually <laughs> as, it, as, as it relates to Candy Lab, um, in, in total transparency. But, um, yeah, man, it was, it was a few different things. It was, you know, there was uh, a couple of us that, that started it. Um, you know, we, we, had a lot of promise at the beginning, you know, the client service work was steady. We were, we were crushing it. Um, you know, the augmented reality thing came along and, you know, we saw that as a big opportunity. Uh, clearly there was nothing like that in the market at the time. Um, and then I think that part of it was realizing that the market wasn't quite ready for something like that in 2010. They just didn't quite understand the technology wasn't there either. Right. Um, and, and so when you're dealing with, with back then, during this time, Instagram was only available on Android uh, phones, or, or was it just iPhones? I think it was just iPhones first, and then Android came later. Um, whichever order it was, I had the opposite phone, so I didn't have Instagram for a period of, like, I don't know, eight to ten months when they were still developing the other apps. So this is really prepubescent to sort of the, the app culture that's developed since then. Um, and then, you know, I think the, the learning lesson for me in, in all of that was – um, and, and Candy Lab is is, uh, is still kind of going, I think, um, sort, sort of sputtering along. But uh, you got to pick your co-founder correctly. And that's something where you never quite know if that is what you're doing or if that's not what you're doing at the time. Sometimes it just plays out long term. Um, but that was one of those cases where, you know, we had we had a lot of disagreements a lot about a lot of stuff. And, um, you know, some of those personality traits uh, were irreconcilable what makes Cloway such a good co-founder co-founder for you <laughs> um yeah look i think i think at the very foundation of any relationship and this goes for co-founders or you know love interests or friends or whatever 
um, there has to be a basis of trust and respect. And if you trust each other and you respect each other, that goes a long way um, as long as one of you don't have some severe type of uh, mental illness. <laughs> uh, so have you, how have you been able to uh, stay so motivated and start new ideas and new projects through the course of your uh, journey so far? Yeah. So for me, it, it's, it's interesting. Like I've always been creating a ton of shit since I was a kid. You know, I grew up painting and, and selling paintings at galleries and going around and, and trying to do that, which is a terrible return on your time. Um, especially when you're like, you know, 15, 16, you're just painting like weird shit <laughs> in, in rural Nebraska. Hey, check this out. Um, so, you know, I just, I've always been addicted to creating things and growing up, we didn't have a lot of cash. So my brother and I both, um, the way that, that we got to play is we would get a box of crayons and colored pencils and markers and such. And we just sit there and, and draw for hours and hours and hours. Um, and you know, that, that sort of later on bred in me, well, we can turn those little chunks of art into money. Um, and so I would go around, I would offer sheep shaving services. I would go brand cattle. I would do, you know, everything, um, that I could to just hustle and get by. So I think underlying all of it is, is really two things. One is just the creative aspect of the way that I see the world. And I, that that's what fuels me is just creating new and different things all the time. I'm creating new and different things every night that no one ever sees um, that I can't even talk about. Uh, and someone will eventually see some of them. Some of them will never come to surface, but I just like doing it. And the second thing is just the absolute abject fear of being in an impoverished environment. And that's the thing that makes me hustle harder than ever. I, I, once you've had that experience, you, you don't want to go back there. Well, yeah, I, I think the statistic is that the majority of first-time millionaires all right, came from impoverished areas. So I think it's just that fear of uh, not not going back essentially yeah and that's that's an interesting thing too and i i, I haven't heard that statistic before but um you know and oftentimes it, it's weird right like you hear these terms self-made or first time or or, or whatever and y there's a little bit of darkness built in that i haven't really talked about this much but it's it's sort of been this crazy realization that i've had over the last call it 18 months is a lot of the people that you see that start businesses and a lot of people that you see that have done well for themselves all credit to them. Don't get me wrong. I'm not hating at all. But the thing that nobody knows is that their parents were rich as shit. And, and that's a market difference in like, yeah, that kid maybe would have made their first, you know, they made the first million, whatever, but you know, their dad invested 500 grand in their series a right. And that's, that's just a different thing. So Nick, when you were growing up, you're, you're shaving sheep, you're uh, branding cattle, you're selling paintings on eBay. You are starting a web consultancy business and then you go into VR. Uh, when you did kind of jump ship from Candy Labs and, and focus all in on Barnana, and I'm sure you've got some other projects going, but when you, when you kind of shifted your focus to Barnana, uh, tell me if I have this right. You, you guys spent about two years developing the product before you sold anything. And then... You went to this trade show and you got interest from a few big grocery chains. And I mean, within how much time you raised about 300K, is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, we <laughs> we spent uh, we took our time developing developing the brand and the product, um, w- which served us well. So when we showed up to the the Natural Foods Expo, which is Expo West, it's the biggest one um, in North America. We basically just faked it. Uh, we didn't have like actual product, like we like you said, we we had not raised time, um, and so yeah, we we got some samples printed some labels off at FedEx, put them in some bags, put them in a glass case, didn't let anybody touch them, um, you know, hand-delivered a couple samples to people that went by, uh, and, and that's what we did. And then we ended up getting Whole Foods and, and Wegmans to place POs with us. Uh, and, and at the time, we're, we're pretty naive to the space. You know, they're asking us what distributors we're in. We're like, uh, we're, we're in wherever you need us to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so we took those POs and um, took those and, and raised capital based off of those. So we did a 300K uh, seed round, if you will, and with 100% warrant coverage within 12 months, meaning that the investors that took that early on risk at 300K could reinvest at that previous valuation 12 months down the road. So was raising that money just a byproduct of having a great product and a great idea, or was there a lot of legwork involved in that? Talk about that process. Yeah, so there's a decent amount of legwork. You know, we went and, and presented to all kinds of random uh, people in offices in like Del Mar and all these, you know, at the time I'm living in the hood, by the way, I'm in Southeast San Diego. So I'm living this weird double life where, you know, at nighttime I, I drive through the ghetto and, and hope, you know, that there's not some shit going down and then uh, wake up in the morning, go to the liquor store to get an energy drink. And there's two dudes drinking 40s getting hammered every morning at 8 a.m., get in the car. <laughs> go to Del Mar to all these, all these rich dudes and then try and convince them that they should give a 20 year old a million dollars to sell bananas on the internet and in uh, Whole Foods. So it was like this crazy time um, in retrospect, but um, yeah, you know, we, we did a bit of legwork uh, that yielded very little results actually. Um, and it was really sort of the, the networking that got us the most results. It, it was just showing up, talking to people, leveraging existing relationships and, and doing that. And you know, we had some people early on that they wanted to beat us up about valuation. And what I oftentimes, oftentimes tell people they're raising their first round is like, well, just keep moving, right? Like, okay, good, next. You know, there's, there's money's everywhere. Money's a commodity. Um, if you have something awesome, somebody's going to want to invest in that thing that is awesome if they believe in you as a person and that's what you truly have to believe if you want to raise this thing and and do what you need to do so two two contrasting perspectives on this early equity debate right one says be generous with your equity one says be very uh you know close close to the chest with it what what was your experience and and what advice did you take there yeah, so my general thought on this is that you want to raise about 20%. You want to give about 20% away, uh, especially in the first round. Uh, I've seen this work against people when it's like, hey, be generous with equity, give somebody 30 40%, something like that. Well, then all of a sudden when you run out of that money in 12 to 16 months, you need to raise another round, and, and that guy or gal is, is trying to put the money in, pretty soon they have – a majority of the company potentially. And when that happens, you lose control. And when that happens, you can get kicked out of your own business. And, you know, I've seen this happen to people that I know, and that's 
really what you want to avoid. Now, being generous with equity in terms of giving it to your employees, I think, is very important. You want everybody to have skin in the game. You want everybody to win. You know, I, I truly do believe that. Um, but in terms of valuation, you got to stick to your guns. Stick that 20% uh, general, general model. And as the business grows, it can be a little bit less than that, but, um, that's what I would recommend. That's how I see things. If you could go back in time, what would you have done differently? Ooh, what would I have done differently? Man, if I could, uh, if I could go do all the things that just cost us money that didn't work differently, I would, um, at the time, <laughs> you know, like back, back then, Probably wouldn't have done a whole lot different back then. Um, I think early on uh, we did it right. Now, you know, as the business grows and, and things come and go, you know, you, you fall flat on your face a few times and you know dust yourself off and be like, shit, well that didn't work. Uh, got got some egg on your face. But um, other than that, I think we did the first round right. So, what, what what's been one of the uh, worst pieces of advice you've ever gotten or heard uh, <laughs> given? Um, uh, some of some of the uh, some of the young founders who have been in here have had some pretty uh, interesting uh, pieces of advice from that. So. Pieces of advice, man. I would say the worst. <laughs> well, where do I take this? So, <laughs> yeah, I think that um, in general, uh, one of the worst pieces of advice that I got is you know the is just the doubters, right? It's just like it's just that humming. Ah, oh, this shit isn't gonna work. You're not gonna this and that, whatever. Um, and you know, fuck those people. Um, I think you really have to 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 be confident in in yourself and f and feel happy within yourself. You know, you don't have to look for external motivation in that way. So I would say anybody giving you the advice of, oh, you know, your idea sucks, product sucks, you suck, anything like that, they can suck it. You know. Um, so I would say that's for sure the worst advice. <laughs> so, so sort of rolling off of that, how do you fight off uh, personal doubt in your companies? Um, yeah, going off of that point. Yeah, you know, I think it's 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 really just keeping your nose to the grindstone. You know, it's it's keeping yourself level. I think it's really important not to have, you know, life is, it ebbs and flows, but you really got to keep yourself as steady as possible. You don't want to have those super high highs and those super low lows. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing. And when people get scared, they make rash decisions. And when you make rash decisions, it's sometimes not the right one, right? I mean, if you're running a little bit lean on cash and you decide to cut all your marketing, well, you should probably expect your velocities to drop, um, you know, and that could be a bad medium to long-term strategy. So I think keeping yourself centered, I think keeping yourself generally sort of in the middle as things come both good and bad is the best approach. So this is not your first business, Nick, when you were building the consultancy and the VR company, uh, were there times where you were thinking, and even with Barnana, were there times when you were thinking, you know, may maybe I should just get a job. Maybe, maybe this isn't going to work out. And, and if so, how did you kind of push through those periods? I never really thought that way. Actually, I think that how I thought about it was, well, I'm going to figure some other hustle to do and, and i had bit, i had jobs uh all throughout college you know when you're when you're first starting and you're doing consulting and things that's a it's a very you know it's a slippery business it's you're out there you're trying to to do biz dev and get clients and then also perform the actual creative things that need to happen for the deliverables to get the cash so 
Yeah, I mean, I was I was hustling all kinds of weird shit back then. Um, you know, the economy crash when I was in college, middle of me being in college, the entire economy took a shit, and we were losing, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs in a month as a country. And you know, so I was I was selling cable internet in Walmart, bro. I was fucking in Subway <laughs> making sandwiches, dog. Like I was selling weed out of my fucking house. I'm you know, I was fucking doing whatever i could do to keep my head above water because i knew there's no backup plan there's no trust fund there's no doll there's no there's no five cents coming from my parents or anybody else to help me out so it was up to me and um so yeah man when, when that's happening you, you definitely have doubts when that's happening you just got to keep going because some people are going to fail and i wasn't going to do that i love that I love that. Respect. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, yeah, you mentioned that uh, you wasted a bunch of money on some marketing activities uh, I'm cu- or, or some sort of, uh, you know, whatever you wasted money on. I'm curious what that was, but also, you know, what other mistakes have you made in building this business? What was the biggest mistake that you guys made? Hmm. <laughs> um, so the marketing piece of it, I would say, you know, in brick and mortar retail, there's these things called slotting fees. And for those of uh, you that are listening that don't know what that is, essentially, it's like this, you know, it's like this mafioso tactic that these big retailers pull. Or I'll say, yeah, look, dude, we, we would love to sell your product. We, lo- you know, we believe in what, it, what you're doing. La-di-da. We think it'll sell well, but we need 100 grand and a case of free product per store. And you're like, wait a second. I thought you guys were on Team Barnana. What's happening? And um, so, so, so those slotting fees can be expensive. And even though you do your break-even analysis and they'll give you their, esti- their estimate for, for what that'll be and what your velocities will be, sometimes that just does not come to fruition. So we've definitely thrown of dollars away paying slotting fees that never really paid off to retailers that never executed on their promises and so you're putting a lot of trust in retailers and it happens to all brands um but we've been able to avoid a couple of those bullets flying towards our heads you know we we, we got out of the way of a few since then um so that was definitely monetarily a giant mistake but i would say the biggest one that we ever made was and this kind of is similar to the co-founder point I was talking about earlier is involving the wrong person in the business as an advisor early on. And there was this guy who he comes with the CV, right? He's like, I don't know, 50 years old or something like that. And so, uh, you know, he founded this, um, you know, this uh, publication within the space and, you know, he's just like, Oh, he's this guy. He seems legit. Right. And, and he wants to be an advisor, potentially an investor wants to help us out, whatever. And um, what that actually turned into is this dude's a straight sociopath, terrible person, um, tried to divide myself and my co-founders, you know, picking each one of us off saying, oh, I don't think that, uh, you know, Cowie's fit for this and that. I don't think Nick's fit for this and that when, you know, one of us wasn't around. And um, just this real, like, crazy, slippery shit. And back then, you know, this is like, this is like, you know, me still living in the hood and like trying to get by and, and putting all my chips on this on the table and, and, and trying to fucking do the thing, you know? And um, it took every ounce of my body not to just jump that man, you know, and just beat his ass um, because, because like you're fucking with somebody's life, you know, like you're fucking with my life and you, and, and you don't even know, like, 
you know, this guy, he probably grew up privileged, whatever. And, 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 and I didn't. And, and when I'm trying to, you know, pull myself out of the bucket, this dude's just the crab on the bottom pulling me back down. Um, and so I would say that was, was a massive mistake. It was, it was looking at the guy's resume, looking at what they've done and not actually getting to know them as a human being before bringing them on as an advisor. Now's probably a good time to mention that Nick, uh, also practices Muay Thai and jujitsu. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Probably that's mess right. With them. <laughs> uh, have different stages of your growth presented different problems. That seems like somewhat of an early stage growth issue, right? Have, have different problems arised as you've grown? Definitely. Yeah. Each stage of the business is different, man. And, and early on, I think the people piece is super, super important, both in hiring, the advisors you bring on, the investors, if you're trying to find a co-founder, all that stuff is super important. And as the business grows, the needs change, the people change, and, and the problems change. And you know, when, when you're first starting, you don't know, there might be seasonality in your business that you're just not forecasting. Um, there's, there's certain things that you're planning on that you really don't have control over. And unless you're a direct to consumer brand, you really don't have control over your sales in, in large part. And it's kind of crazy to say, but you know, if, if Amazon goes and buys Whole Foods and then just decides Whole Foods is only going to sell Amazon private label products, well, then you're fucked. Like, there's nothing you can do. Um, and, and similarly, when you're forecasting certain volumes of, of product to be sold at a certain retailer, call it in January, and, and come June, they decide they're just going to push that back four months. Well, four months is almost half a year. And so you were planning on this revenue, right? You, you put that in the plan. You sent it to your board. You told the entire business how much revenue you're going to do that year. You're bonusing people off of that. And one big retailer can, can really mess that up. And so I think that recently at least uh, a lot of the forecasting is tough and and also maintaining those those retail relationships as buyers change in our business in the food business and this is you know is, is pretty true for cpg generally um the buyers at these retailers have a ton of power and they change relatively frequently depending on which retailer it is and so making sure that you diversify your relationships within that organization that you're selling to is really really important and you know we failed to do that a couple of times tell us about the barnana team and uh specifically about the roles that yourself kawe and matt play on a daily basis yeah, so I do all of the marketing, branding, design, um, communications, that type of thing. Although uh, those things always tend to change when you first start. Everybody's a Swiss Army knife, you know. It's like you need a knife now, and then you need a can opener later. Um, you know, Matt basically runs the operations, so he's making sure the wheels stay on. Um, and then Cowie's looking at both those things and making sure that the wheels stay on and they stay shiny. So kind of out of left field, but I guess we all have to know. So you went from living in the hood to riding in a giant banana with T-Pain. How, how, <laughs> how does that even happen? Um, like, how were you able to build up your personal brand to that and the Barnana brand to get such, such publicity as uh, stuff like that? Yeah, it's kind of wild. Uh, <laughs> you know, I... Um... I don't know, man. It just kind of happened serendipitously. I think if you're out there and you're crushing shit, if you're doing epic shit all the time, people are going to notice it. 
and people are interested in it and they're going to give you opportunities, right? Like if, if you're doing awesome things by you, those opportunities will come. I think a lot of people sort of do something in expectation that, that something like that will occur, but I, I never really have that that view on things. I think I'm just doing my own thing. And, you know, if, if uh, Fuse TV and T-Pain want to contact me and ask want to be on a random TV show uh, dumping bags of plantain chips on our faces in a banana car, uh, you know, like, let's do it. Um, you know, but I think uh, you do have to be purposeful about a couple of things. With, with the personal brand stuff at a very base level, you don't want somebody else to write your story for you. So what are you going to do? you're going to write your own. You, you better write your own because if you don't, somebody else will for you and, and, and that's not what you want. How important has your personal brand been, Nick, to the growth of Barnana as a company? Uh, I don't think it's been that important, um, to be honest with you. I think it's, it's sort of a different thing. It, it, it at least allows me to be in my own lane and, and do other cool and different shit that, that I like to do. Um, it certainly... Uh, benefits the business there, there's no doubt in that right i mean the more eyeballs that you get period uh for anything it's going to be better for for the business um broadly but um you know i, I do th i see it as more of an avenue to just you know be my true self and i'm being my true self with you guys and uh, that's something that you don't often get to do in more of your formal business settings uh, Nick, we'll talk more about this later, but Nate and I have a great pitch for you, right? <laughs> Here's what we're thinking. Me and Nate run a big PR and social media campaign where we drive your banana mobile across the U.S. and broadcast it all on social media. We're on the I like the sounds of that. Samples, right? We're, we're, we're doing the, the legwork, building the relationships Giving people rides in the banana mobile. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah, let's fucking do it. <laughs> um, talk about the vision for the company. Where do you see yourselves in five or 10 years? So the vision for the company is to make the best, better for you snacks that you can put inside your mouth and have your tongue enjoy. And, you know, it's we're ruthlessly focused on building the brand right now and you know, uh, whatever happens from there, we'll, we'll take them as they come. You know, in in our industry, there's a ton of M&A. There's a ton of private equity involved. And when you raise capital, the reality is, unless you're going to become profitable enough to pay back your investors in dividends, there will be uh, an event uh, sometime in the future. So uh, it's something that, that I don't really focus on, we don't really focus on, and you know, it's, it's our general belief that you don't eat a banana expecting it to become a peel, and we see the business in that way too. You know, we're we're going we're gonna to enjoy every bite. So is, is starting a business in the food industry a lot harder than other industries that you've experienced? Like I know it's like starting a t-shirt company is fairly easy. You slap a, slap a design on a shirt and you sell it, um, but with food, it, I feel like it's a bit more difficult and a lot more um, red tape and everything. Uh, if you could explain that. Absolutely. I've, I started a couple of uh, t-shirt companies <laughs> Same. on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really great one, especially when you have DTG on, on board and you don't have to hold the inventory. Um, yeah, dude, food is, is super difficult. It's difficult in, in a lot of different ways. 
Uh, one of the ways in which it's difficult is the cash turnaround cycle. So you're purchasing your raw ingredients, you're taking it to a co-packer, co-packers then making it, um, and then you're selling it to a distributor that's then selling it to the end retailer, call it your Whole Foods or your Kroger's or, or whoever. There's some direct uh, shipping, but generally speaking, there's a distributor involved. And so it takes a long time for you to, to get your cash back. And in addition to that, the margins in the food space are not software margins. They're not personal care margins. They're certainly not agency margins. Um, and so the margins are, are thin. And so food businesses that are doing, call it generally less than $30 million in top line revenue are typically running their business at a loss because you have to invest so much in sales and marketing um, and everything else. It's, it's one of those industries that is pretty difficult to start and there's also not a lot of guidance in terms of how it works and what to do and you know the, the way the ecosystem functions so if you haven't been in there and, and and have done it before it's a tough thing to figure out and how were you able to figure it out just sort of trial and error or just sent it yeah just trial and error a lot of Fuck error yeah. that's um, the best way to do it <laughs> yep <laughs> i thought you were gonna say i just sent it <laughs> Bro, I send it every day. <laughs> Who doesn't? Just fucking send it. <laughs> Nick, what's been your greatest accomplishment thus far, and what are you looking forward to accomplishing the most in the future? I think the most, I would say, the biggest accomplishment for me thus far is just growing as a person, man. I mean, I think that when I was younger and uh, in in a worse spot, I was less kind. I think I was a lot more aggressive. Um, not in in a healthy way. I'm still super aggressive now, default aggressive all day, but um, in in a different way. You know, with a lot more kindness and empathy. And um, I, I do think that uh, the biggest thing for me and and it varies for everybody, right? You have to define what success means to you. But for me, it's being the best me that I can be. And that's learning new skills. It's getting good at things that I suck at when you first start. Um, I would say that's the biggest accomplishment, man, is, is, is not accomplishing anything um, by trying to accomplish everything. Nick, you, Nate, and I are filming a movie. What is the movie called? <laughs> And what, what's the storyline? <laughs> should we get, should we get yeah. backgrounds on us? <laughs> you know what? I have an idea. I have an idea. We're filming a movie where the three of us ride a banana mobile across the country. <laughs> <laughs> I would call it uh, uh, Loathing and Fear in Los Angeles. <laughs> Okay, what individual has been the most inspiring person in your life and why? The most inspiring one was certainly my father. Uh, you know, he was the only one that believed in me as a child and, and, and going through and growing up. And, you know, we had to rely on government assistance growing up and, um, and all of that. So, I, you know, I didn't look up to him in the way of like, oh, this dude's just making a ton of money or anything like that. Um, but he was the kindest, gentlest human being on on the planet. And, you know, I, I, I try to be uh, as, as good as he was every day. And, and I never will be. Uh, I don't, in my mind, no one will be. But and he's the kind of guy that like he would know that, that 
you two and, and I were having a podcast today and then tomorrow you two be stranded somewhere in jail, whatever, it might be three hours away. And if he knew, he would just go drive there and and pick you up, <laughs> you know. Um, that's the dude that he was. And um, that unconditional just gratitude and kindness and, and empathy for the world uh, really had a, a massive impact on on me. Well, shit, man, I hope I don't get arrested tomorrow and make your dad drive all the way down to Peru. <laughs> that would be a big problem. <laughs> so are there any things that you do on a daily basis that sort of help you keep on track for your um, daily goals, like daily routines? Yeah, I'm ruthless, uh, super ruthless with that. So I have uh, anybody who knows me in real life, I have about a million notebooks um, all the time. Uh, the notebook is the biggest friend of mine. I, I use Evernote too, and I, I do a lot of sort of more permanent note-taking in Evernote. But I think for writing down your thoughts and more ethereal types of ideas and to-do lists and, and things like that, I like to have a physical form to do it in. So I, um, I have essentially one page for each major project that I'm working on that serves as sort of like a master to-do sheet. Not super specific to-dos, but more high-level general things. So each of those pages are filled up to bottom and they're separate, separated into different sections. And then each day I will take pieces of those and then write them on a daily to-do. And if I don't get every single one crossed off, uh, which is rare, then it automatically rolls over to the next day. There's no, oh, that just didn't happen. I'll just do it whenever. Uh, just really ruthless accountability and discipline. Yeah, I respect that. Coming up on, we're, we're right, we're running at about 40 minutes into the podcast. We're not going to keep you on here forever, Nick, but uh, uh, we'll wind it down a little bit. Let me, let me give you a quick plug here. Uh, you, listeners, you can find Nick's products at barnana.com. Uh, follow him on social media or follow his company on social media at barnana. Nick, your social is at Ingersoll Nick. Yep, at Ingersoll N-I-K. I'm also going to be launching a podcast here soon. Um, so you'll be able to download that everywhere that you can download podcasts. It'll just be called the Nick Ingersoll Show. So not a lot to remember. Awesome. Uh, I will personally vouch for the Banana Bites, both the peanut butter and chocolate, as well as the, the brittle. Uh, my dog is also a big fan of the banana, the, the, the peanut butter banana brittle. <laughs> and, and the dark chocolate is absolutely bomb. So, I mean, <laughs> there you, you go. There's, there's your reviews. I was, I, was quite, I was quite surprised. Like, I was not expecting. Uh, I, was, I was surprised by it. Like, sort of going into it not knowing what it is because it's, you're so used to banana chips and stuff. So, That's it's kind right. of interesting that it's uh, actually like, it's like a banana texture, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's chewy, chewy, delicious bananas, not those banana chips. And also, just because it's organic doesn't mean it has to taste like shit. So Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you've got a pretty rigorous daily routine. You're, you're disciplined with your to-do lists. If you had an extra four hours in your day, how would you spend that time? I try to squeeze every single hour out of the day as humanly possible. I routinely stay up till 1 or 2 a.m., wake up at you know, 6.30 to 8.30, somewhere in that range, um, intermittently fast in the morning so I don't have to spend time, waste time doing that. About an additional four hours, I would just be crushing more of the projects that I'm already working on. Um, you know, if, if, that's, if, that, if I only get four extra hours, 
I'd be doing, I'd just be doing more of the same thing I already do, man. Hustling. If you weren't running this business, what would you be doing? I'd be running another one um, (laughs) (laughs) that I may or may not know what it is already. uh, And probably a couple other ones as well. Yeah. Awesome. What advice would you give to a young founder with an idea? This is pre-revenue. And how would the advice change as the business evolves? When it first starts, just remember that your ideas don't mean shit. A lot of people that are pre-revenue and depending on the stage, you think the idea is everything, but it's, it's all in the execution. You've heard it a million times and it really is true. The idea just doesn't matter that much. I mean, it does to an extent, but uh, only, only to the extent of which you, you actually execute on it. Um, also, be real with yourself. Um, I see a lot of people that convince themselves of all sorts of things. Um, you want to avoid that pitfall. You also want to avoid the pitfall of escalation of commitment on, on ideas. It's, it's somewhat related to that. Um, and as you grow the business, just make sure what you're doing brings you happiness and if you're in a spot and that doesn't mean that you can't take a couple punches of the face right i mean you're gonna take a plenty of those it's not gonna make you happy to take those but you know you grit down on, on your mouthpiece and and take them and um and roll with the punches um but if you truly get to a spot where you're not happy or whatever it is just make sure you're optimizing for that you're optimizing for the freedom to do what you really truly want to do because I think that's something that I think a lot about and everybody probably should. How do you, uh, what's your advice to get to that space of knowing exactly sort of your path you want to take? The path that you'll take is often the one that's hidden in the bushes. It's a trail that, that maybe you don't see, maybe nobody else sees. And sometimes you trip on a rock and then you fall into the bush and discover the path all of a sudden. There's no right or wrong way to do it. There's a million and one different ways. You could, you could be designing something late at night and uh, you know, smoking pot and listening to Jimi Hendrix, and then you just come up with an idea that you like. Um, you could meet somebody else that inspires you. You could see a market opportunity, um, and you want to jump on that. You could find you know, an Amazon niche that, that's been previously undiscovered or a niche site or – you know, any number of things, but uh, I think really what it is, is just don't, don't have the preconceived notion. And I, again, that you see this in relationships, right? Like, Oh, you know, that girl's got this flaw. She's not my type. I'll only date this and that or whatever. Well, well that may or may not be true once you get into it. Right. I think you can find a lot of passion for stuff that maybe you didn't know you're interested in. And if you have an open mind, you'll find the path. So it's like the famous quote, just stay curious, always be hungry. That's right. Nick, what do you wish you had known or implemented both in your life and in your business sooner than you did? Hmm. What do I wish I would have known? I think that um, (laughs) it's a double-edged sword. I, I almost wish I had known that a lot of the people that start a lot of businesses and do well come from really rich families. But then on the other hand, ignorance is bliss in that way. Cause I don't think it would have encouraged me anymore. I had a chip on my shoulder. So it was probably good that I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> but at the time I probably would have wanted to know if somebody had that information readily available. Uh, I, I also think that 
really understanding sort of the political nature of, of the way that business functions, both inter-business and intra-business, both of those things are, are vastly important. And I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of parallels to be drawn both between psychology and politics and the way that businesses function. And that's with employees, co-founders, it's with, you know, suppliers and partners and, and basically everything else. You really have to be cognizant of the way people think um, to, to sort of avoid any confusion. And I also think it's, it's being true to yourself and unapologetically um, you and not trying to emulate anybody else and, and having a backbone and standing up for yourself and what you believe in. All right, Nate and I both have one more question for you, Nick. Uh, real quick, if you guys listening have enjoyed this podcast or you got some value from it, please share it with a friend, tag us on social media, leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Anything you guys can do to help us spread the word is so helpful to us and much appreciated. With that said, Nick, what's one book you'd recommend to a young entrepreneur? One book that I would recommend. If I could only choose one, it would be The Dichotomy of Leadership by Jocko Willink. If you could choose three. <laughs> I would choose that one. I would choose Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And I would also choose Letters of a Stoic by cool. Seneca the Younger. Hold on. We got a bonus question. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> Ooh. The classic, but I think it has to be asked because it's a tradition. So what is your definition of entrepreneurship? <laughs> My definition of entrepreneurship. My definition of, of, of entrepreneurship is not renting a Ferrari and taking pictures with uh, cash <laughs> that you have to pay rent with. Um, that's definitely not what it is. <laughs> um, easiest way to find out who's not is to find those people <laughs> and cross them off the list. I also think the definition of entrepreneurship is not being a scam artist by selling courses for shit you've never done and acting like you know what you're talking about. I think that's also not entrepreneurship. I think that's... Um, something that you see a lot uh, around the internet. You've probably been served a million and one ads like that. Um, but I think a true entrepreneur is someone who has uh, a very high tolerance for risk-taking that truly does love to make things out of thin air, to think of something and then turn it into a reality, and also somebody who is willing to eat plates and plates and <laughs> plates of shit until the shit turns into a steak. <laughs> I love it. We're going we're gonna to ride out to that. That's a great quote. We'll probably pull that one out and put it in the front. <laughs> we're going to ride out to some closing music here. And uh, Nick, stick around for a second. Uh, we'll catch up with you after the podcast. Hey, folks, it's Riley Farbaugh. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Young Founders Podcast. If you guys enjoyed this episode, if you got any value from it, Please help spread the word, post a screenshot to your Instagram story, tell us what episodes you've been listening to on Twitter, share an episode with your Facebook fam, text someone a link to an episode if you think they benefit from it, and please leave us a review on the podcasting platform of your choice. Anything you guys can do to help us out is so helpful to us and very, very much appreciated. You can connect with me on Twitter or Instagram at Riley Farah. Find Nate at NT Bowl. You can also find every episode of the Young Founders podcast at the Young Founders 
www.thepodcastmaker.com. We've also compiled a bunch of resources there to help you guys out on your journey towards creating a profitable, sustainable, and fulfilling business for yourselves. And if there's anything Nate and I can do to help you guys out along the way, please reach out to us. We both love connecting with other young entrepreneurs and we're happy to help in any way that we can. Also, if you think you or someone you know would be a good fit to be a guest on the podcast, let us know that also. We're always looking for cool new guests. You can DM us or go to theyoungfounders.com slash apply and fill out the short form there. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Young Founders Podcast. We'll see you next time.